Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort. At our core, we believe collaboration can win this battle against dementia. And by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having everyday conversations about real life with dementia, we can remove those stigmas attached to memory loss. And you can help all of those in the trenches take back their lives and live with purpose. Together, we can help professionals understand the true needs, not just their perceptions of those that they're dealing with, as well as family members. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we want to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss, their care partners, both family and professional, as well as advocates supporting the cause so we can all live a much better life by raising awareness together and sharing the everyday life stories about living with memory loss, we give hope. No longer can we be driven by fear, and together we can teach people how to live with the disease, not as it. We hope you'll join us and check out our resource website, which will give you access to all of our platforms, the blog, um, the resource directory, the radio show, YouTube, and free tools, and so much more. Our channel expert on our show is Rick Phelps, and Rick has early-onset Alzheimer's disease, known as EOAD, and he's not going to be able to make it with us this morning. But I always like to let uh, new listeners know about Rick because he has started a group on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group called Memory People. And if you're part of Facebook, all you have to do is put in the search bar, Memory People, and asked to join the group. It's a real-time situation with people living with the disease. Those are actually diagnosed as well as care partners and professionals working with people with the disease. There's no pitching or selling. It's just, you know, a collaboration of helping one another get through, uh, get through this process. Now, today's show, we're going to have a great show. I've got two absolutely fabulous guests for you. And I would love for you all to join the conversation. And you can do that in a couple of fashions. You can actually call into the show at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Or you can sign in using um, Facebook and utilize the chat box. Um, and I, I do have just a couple of announcements before we we um, move on to our guests. Um, first of all, there is a new clinical trial out. 
in Phase 3 for Alzheimer's. And I just want to make sure everyone is aware of it. It's by Tau, Tau RX Therapeutics. And all you have to do is go to www.don'tforgetalzheimers.com. Again, that's uh, www.don'tforgetalzheimers.com. There's a webinar that explains all about it. And, of course, tomorrow is Election Day, so I always want to remind people to go ahead and vote. And I won't get into political biases there. Uh, I know better than that. And then ShareCare, um, which is um, a program on the Internet um, devised by Dr. Oz and uh, Jeff Arnold, um, are having a Facebook chat tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central, and that would be 4 p.m. Pacific Time. And that's going to feature Lisa Gibbons, um, who is an Alzheimer's caregiver advocate, Eric Hall, who is the president and CEO of Alzheimer's Foundation America, and Dr. Um, Peter Rabins from John Hopkins University as well. And again, if you go to Facebook and just type in ShareCare, that'll pop in and you'll be able to get to that. It's free of charge and, um, and it might be something of interest to you. Um, last note, I just have to share some really exciting news um, that I got myself. And um, ShareCare is also announcing today, in fact, it's hot off the press. They're top 10 influencers on Alzheimer's disease on the Internet. And I was honored enough, as Alzheimer's Speaks, um, to be named number one in that. So I'll be posting that to the blog. Um, there are um, nine under other fabulous people with wonderful resources for you as well that I encourage you to check out. And um, ShareCare has all kinds of information, not just on Alzheimer's and dementia, but all kinds of uh, health situations there too. So just another another great resource. So without further ado here, let me go ahead and introduce our first guest. Um, I'm very honored to have Dr. Atel Lord with us. And Dr. Lord has been self-employed for about 20 years. And since 2004, she has taught herself um, has taught different types of live and virtual college classes at several universities um, in the U.S., ranging from psychology to business research. She's developed and presided over several businesses, including a private practice in counseling, a management consulting coaching business, and currently um, her company, Remembering for You, is a consulting and training organization in Alzheimer's coaching. She received her Bachelor in Behavioral Science and an MED in Counseling from the Universities of Maine. And then from the University of Phoenix, she obtained her uh, Doctor in Management in Organization. Um, her dissertation entitled, entitled Quantitative Study of Executive Coaching from a Learning Transfer Perspective has been one of the most purchased by public um, after its publication. She's married to uh, Larry Potter, um, who is a major and retired in the U.S. Air Force, who was diagnosed with vascular Alzheimer's in 2003. And Larry has been her greatest teacher in the field of Alzheimer's disease. So how are you doing today, Dr. Lord? I'm doing fine, Laurie, and please call me a tell. Uh, okay. First of all... 
I really want to congratulate you for that uh, nomination as number one uh, to top it uh, because I'm so proud to know you and I know of your work. So congratulations once again. Oh, thank you. It's it's quite the honor. I'm just uh, I'm I'm thrilled to death with it. And you know, it's it's not about me. It's not about my company. It's not about my mom who started this whole thing with me. It really is just a testament to the need for the information and the education and the collaboration um, that we need to do on a global level. And so, um, again, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. If you can give us a little bit of background before we get into talking kind of about your company and and services and how you can help people with dementia, can you give our audience a little peek into your personal journey with your husband's dementia and how it not only affected him but you? Yes, I, I can do that, absolutely. Um, the personal journey uh, began in uh, 1999 when he actually uh, went to Boston for open-heart surgery and triple bypass. And after that surgery, he never was the same. Uh, and finally, in January of 2003, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, I had been a paralegal for legal services for the elderly in the late uh, 1980s, and uh, I had been to many, many nursing homes advocating for uh, people living in long-term care. And after that uh, experience, I uh, was elected president of the Maine Gerontological Society for two terms in a row. So that would have been uh, four years or uh, a term of four years uh, each. Um, and I realized then how poorly our services were and where our priorities uh, could perhaps was sick in 2003 and had to access these services, I discovered that not much had changed. And uh, I struggled to help him and create uh, safety around him and to protect him and provide for him as best as I could for about 10 years. And then when he stopped walking, in 2010, I had to place him uh, in long-term care and realized, again, that long-term care had not changed very much, certainly not enough to um, to make a big difference. And I thought, perhaps I can do something about that. Uh, so that's my personal journey. It was very difficult, uh, pretty well isolated. Families, uh, My family is in Canada, French Canada. His family is out west, and we had no children around us. Okay. Yep. That's a that's a big piece to bite off. Then you know, when you're mm-hmm. when you're by yourself, that's for sure. So, can you tell us, you know, what is the mission that you have created around remembering for for you, and how did you come to even and pick that name for your company? Oh, that uh, that's a beautiful uh, question, Lori. Uh, remembering for you is because that was my very first challenge. When my husband would get up in the morning, he would ask me, what are we doing today? Now, you know yourself when you get up in the morning, you plan your day, and you go to try to do as much as you can on your agenda. Uh, imagine having two agendas in front of you and many times guessing what his agenda should look like. So that question, remembering for him, so I could remember things that were, were, were good for to keep him active and as bright as he could be, as long as he could be, I had to have two schedules, and so that name came from that, Remembering for You. And our mission is truly to um, influence as many 
facilities as we can, management and administration, to provide a better service, uh, to cooperate rather than uh, compete, to open a closed system uh, and make it an open system. So it's quite a big mission. Uh, we're moving one day at a time on it. Okay, okay. Well, that's, um, you know, it's like you said, it's a journey and a half. Um, with the process, can you tell us, you know, what exactly does your company do, and who who will benefit from it? Ultimately, uh, it will benefit everyone. But our real our goal is to um, make it uh, more uh, what I, we call an Alzheimer's friendly healthcare workforce. And so we know that staff will be will benefit because they'll be more relaxed and they'll have more job satisfaction once this is in place. Um, they'll do a better job more easily. Uh, they'll take less sick leave, perhaps, less, less stress. Uh, and at the same time, this whole program offers family caregivers an, uh, a very unique chance and an opportunity to receive even more training in Alzheimer's care but also to connect, reconnect with their loved ones, to complete that cycle of life that is so important. It's really a human, a basic human need. And for management to uh, perhaps uh, look at a different way of managing, uh, instead of managing by crisis, is uh, to be managing more uh, in, a, in a more relaxed form and uh, cooperative and with, with the help of uh, what we call Alzheimer's coaches. Alzheimer's coaches are perfectly trained for that position to help management and CEOs of hospitals, uh, administrators of care centers, and also managers of assisted living, those three uh, main categories. And there might be others, but at at this time we focus on those three. Okay. Now, when you say focus on, you know, those three, can you uh, give our audience some examples of types of things you would do with each audience um, and, and how they might be similar or, the, or, or different? Well, often um, they are different, of course, they are different, but often they're attached or, or connected or, or they own all three or they, a hospital might own a, might own, a, own a care center, but they also might own assisted living or a care center might also own assisted living. So they move people from one area to another, uh, and so th- those they are all different. Of course, they are. Uh, as you know, with your mother, when she went into the hospital, uh, it's it's a very dangerous time to do that uh, to go in there. Doctors today, when I go into hospitals, uh, I, we also work with doctors to be care partners uh, into this whole this whole program that we have. Uh, the care partner, the caregiver partnership agreement program. We call them care partners. It starts with doctors and it goes down to your CNAs. And so doctors today have very, very little training, and some have no training on how to approach a person with Alzheimer's. We work with that, so we make them Alzheimer's friendly. Uh, we work with nursing staff who also lack some of the education, uh, and uh, CNAs that have direct contract contact and care for those. Uh, residents, and we want to also change the concept that hospitals is for sick people. That's true. We go there for either surgery or some problem, but once we get into a care center or assisted living, it really should be more like a home. Uh, people in the care centers and assisted living 
are normally not sick. They may be old. They may have Alzheimer's. I don't look at Alzheimer's as a sickness. I, I look at it as a condition, uh, just like you would with uh, diabetes. Uh, I wouldn't say that that person is, uh, you know, in a, in a care center because they're sick with Alzheimer's. I would say that they need some, some care. They need some assistance. Um, but that's a condition they have to live with. And so the Alzheimer's coach goes in there and works with not only the administration, but setting up programs such as you have set up in your area, uh, Alzheimer's Cafe. The the um, Alzheimer's coach is, is very well trained to establish that and also manage something like that. Uh, they also manage that caregiver partnership agreement program for the whole organization, whether it's a hospital, uh, care center, or assisted living. Okay. Um, so what have you found are, are the greatest challenges facing each of your three categories that you work with? I I think uh, the the greatest uh, challenge in all of them uh, so far that I have I have uh, concluded by by talking to people and also observe observation is uh, the fact that they are really not ready to deal with the specialized care of Alzheimer's. Uh, they don't know where to go and how to do it more easily and more effectively, and so there are almost swamped with, uh, with first of all, the influx of uh, residents and patients that come into the hospital with Alzheimer's, and uh, the lack of preparation is what I think is the biggest challenge, both in, uh, as far as dealing with it medically, if they're in the hospital, and then uh, physically with the facilities that we have that we used to use uh, for uh, they, they, they didn't call them care centers, they called them nursing homes. Those facilities are not really laid out and ready to receive these, um, these residents. And so it's creating a chaos. And chaos leads to crisis. Very true, very true. Um, how about with, uh, with family? Um, what do you what do you see? Is there a, a specific uh, challenge that you see them face? Yes, um, I find that a lot of families, uh, probably a large percentage of families, often begin and end in denial. So all that time, the person that has Alzheimer's perhaps is neglected, and even in some cases, I've seen abused. Um, the other thing is the families that are prepared to want more information, want to get in there, learn as much as they can, and do as much as they can, are blocked once that person comes to uh, a care center because at that door we're entering a closed system and it seems or it appears to them as though uh, they have lost control of their loved ones unless they see them a, an hour or two a week, and for that hour or two that's about the closest they can get. I have heard many, many people, just like I did 20 years ago, say, I don't, need, I don't want to complain, I don't want to bring up a problem because I'm afraid that my loved one will be identified and targeted for some other you know, neglect down the road when they're not there. It, it's a sad situation, and we mm -hmm. need to open that system so we can have open talks, so we can have a way to help everyone and to support everyone. That's great. One of our listeners is just utilizing the chat box. In fact, it's Rick Phelps, our 
our expert who's just not able to uh, join us on the on the phone today says you're absolutely right Alzheimer's is a condition it's not a sickness and That's right. and, and it needs to be treated as such and mm-hmm. um, that is so important we have so many stigmas out there with this disease and you know, we, we talk about people being in denial. Well, they're in denial because they're ashamed of the way society looks at this disease and treats people who either have it or who are dealing with somebody who has the disease. And, and yeah, it really needs to change um, big time. And so I, I think it's wonderful, you know, that you're doing this coaching and this training. And I And I like the concept, too, of you know, bringing everyone together, you know, that you're not just doing the professionals or you're not just doing the family because we all overlap and we have to learn to um, engage. Now, we do have a caller on the line, and, and I'd like to pull them in if that's okay with you. Yes, and that's so fine. Our caller is from a 508 number. So 508, you are live. If you would introduce yourself and ask your question or make your comments. Oh, well, thank you. This is Christine, and I'm calling from Massachusetts. And I'm uh, really enjoying this, um, you know, information from Dr. Lord. And um, one thing I was, I wanted to know is if you could give me an example of how doctors should approach an Alzheimer's patient differently than just, say, an elderly patient without a memory loss condition. Wonderful question. And Adela, I'll let you go ahead and answer that. Yes, um, there is a, a concept out there and a new uh, theory by um, and a book by Oliver James called Contented Dementia, and uh, it's, it is it's a wonderful book that everybody really ought to have in their bookcase if they have anyone with uh, with Alzheimer's or other other dementias. How doctors should approach a patient is simply by never asking a question. For example, if you say to someone, and they all do it. Uh, on 1 to 10, what is your level of pain, 10 being the highest? That's a question. Uh, we don't want questions, period. Um, we, you want to say to the person, I, I see you're in pain. That's how you do it. I see you're in pain. Let me look at you. Well, and not only is that a question, but it's a complicated question. Cause it's it is. It requires just... thinking. And what yeah. is their problem? The it's problem is that the thinking process is broken down. Yeah, it, it it requires them to know where the pain is, what the pain is, and then to evaluate the level of the pain, and then to communicate that. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated question, and we're so used to asking questions and making statements that we just don't think, and we have to no, slow down. No, it's a down. natural thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have to slow down and really be much more conscious of the process. Um, last uh, last time I had uh, Monica Helmtes on, and she's an occupational therapist, and she did just a great job about breaking down tasks that we just take for granted. And she, she said, well, it might be even setting the table. And she said, you know, we just think, well, go set the table. No big deal. But there's so many levels to setting the table and then how to break it down so that it's easier for a person with dementia, even as they progress through it, to still be engaged, still feel purpose, and be part of the process. And it might get to the point where, you know, it's just putting one knife 
you know, or one utensil on the table at a time, and you hand that to them, and they run back and forth, you know, towards towards uh, you know more later stages versus being able to go into the cupboard and grab them. And that's the same type of thing I think we have to do with with our questions, with our comments when we're engaging people is really think what is it we're asking, you know, and how many steps does it really does it really take? Um, yes, if I could only say one thing is to forget questions, period, period. Mm-hmm. Do not ask for questions. I like that, that uh, call from Christine. It was very appropriate. The next thing I wanted to say, Lori, is setting up the table. We know that their feelings in their fingers are completely different than yours and mine. So even setting up a table is, is pushing the envelope here and asking for trouble, setting them up to fail. Um, so that's that's really important. Um, I wanted to go back just for a second to that uh, comment you made before you took the call from Christine at 508. Uh, the term that we use uh, to put uh, professionals together with, uh, uh, including the Alzheimer's coach, is uh, now called in- interprofessionality. Okay. So you know. Yeah. Okay. Interprofessionality. It's a process by which... Professionals reflect on and develop ways of practicing uh, that provides an integrated and cohesive answer to the needs of the client, family, and population. I've never heard that word before. No, I didn't think so. It came out of Canada. There's two Uh researchers in 2005 that uh, coined that term and uh, defined it as such. Well, I love it because it does a couple of things. One, you know, it, it makes us think what does the word really mean, and it slows us down um, to really process and understand how important, you know, our words are and in terms of our service and stuff. So I, I love phrases like that, that that are just out of the box um, and make us step back and go, oh. Yes, and it does require a paradigm shift, as you know, mm-hmm. and in coaching that's really what we're all about. We look for shifts, and uh, that, that term was so appropriate when I found Exactly right. Uh huh. Wonderful. Um, did you want to expand any more on on Christine's comment at all, or were you? No, that was one example. But I'll give another example. For example, when uh, when I went to the uh, care center where my husband is, and uh, a CNE said to me, or a nurse said to me, uh, "It's time to eat." And I and she asked, I, I believe, was completely uh, in stage three. And uh, I said, wow, you asked quite a few questions. We had just discussed not asking questions. She said, it's hard to do. I said, yes, it's very hard, and it requires a conscious shift. And she wanted the person to go to the table to eat. And she kept asking, aren't you hungry? Look, your meal is there. Don't you want it? And uh, she kept asking questions. And finally she looked at me. She said, how would you say that? Otherwise, I'd say, let's go and eat. I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they follow they do. I, I found that um, real easy. We used to have just difficult times with my mom in a restaurant because, it, you know, that's so complicated, too, ordering food. Um, mm-hmm. It's overwhelming, all of the choices, and, you know, we expect them to still be able to read, and um, sometimes we really don't know if they can or not. And then, you know, when the menus change and, and uh, things, and so... We just we you know we started going to like a buffet because then we thought okay visually this will work better and it did for a while and then the you know the the um, disease progressed 
And then the the buffet table just got really overwhelming for her. Again, too many choices and kind of bopping around. And so, you know, towards the end when we would go out to eat, it was just so much easier for me to say, hey, would you like to get a couple of things and we can share? Because then if her mind, you know, she changed her mind by the time the food got there, we had a little bit more to work with, and then she was yeah. doing me a favor. And um, and it was just so much easier um, to do it together. And I think knowing that we, um, you know, if you're caring for a loved one, typically you're going to have a good idea of the foods that they like. Um, but I know one of the things that, that Rick and Harry say, have said on our dementia chats is sometimes things change. And so yeah. we also have to be able to read those signs. And just because they always liked pizza, maybe they don't anymore. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But picking up on those signs. And, and do you see that caregivers kind of get stuck in that mode of just being comfortable with what used to be and not yes. investigating mm-hmm. the signs so much? Yes, that's exactly right what you're saying. Um, and uh, the the thing with Alzheimer's, as you just pointed out, it is a moving, uh, it's almost like a moving target. We have to be prepared uh, to shift once in a while uh, especially with sickness, I find that with sickness, uh, Alzheimer's, people living with Alzheimer's and sickness, they do have a shift. I've noticed that every time. And then if it ever returns, luckily, uh, it would take a long time uh, when it does. And so even in long-term care, what I find is that the needs of uh, individuals are, are constantly shifting and when you're looking at a, a group of individuals, let's say 20, 30 people, that's a lot of shifting on a daily basis. They start perhaps very clearly on target uh, in their in their uh, uh, living with Alzheimer's, but be, being very bright, as uh, Tipa Snow uh, calls it, like a diamond, uh, mm-hmm. very precious. They know things. They can even speak at times. And then they gradually, gradually through the day, will wear down, uh, as we do, you and I, when we have a big day of work at the end of the day and we sit down, uh, we just don't want even to take another question, right? Yeah. I, oh, remember yeah. When my, <laughs> I remember when my husband was well, we had a line. Instead of saying uh, maybe perhaps uh, not responding properly, we would have a line, and I said to him, when I say, please, no joking and no questions, that means I'm extremely tired. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because a joke requires getting it, right? And yep. a question requires thinking, which means even more energy. And mm-hmm. so that was our line. Uh, it's the same with Alzheimer's at the end of the, uh, and even at the beginning. I never asked my question, my, any questions to my husband. No uh-huh. questions. We have the best time. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that really makes a lot of sense to have, have your little codes. Um, and uh, because we do now in our relationships, and so things like that shouldn't go away. Um, no. We need to make them as normal as possible, and, and to me, I think, and you might disagree with this thought, but I, I think people have to start looking, you know, for the commonalities um, and the things that haven't changed and focus. I mean, you need to be aware of what has changed, but I think so many times people end up going down the rabbit hole, and they forget about what they do have and what is working, um, because they're so worried about what they've lost or what might come to be a loss in the future. And then they miss they miss out living and connecting 
and having those those silly moments or phrases like you you know signals that you have with your husband, um, which I think are beautiful and mm-hmm. make a lot of sense. And that's when we were both both healthy. Now I, we don't have that signal anymore. But I, I'll pick up on just something you just uh, talked about about the commonalities. Um, mm-hmm. It's not so much that we have things in common now as much as I really am very protective of him and I still want to uh, provide as much as I can. Uh, What is important for everyone is to know that there is something very nice about Alzheimer's. Let me tell you what it is. Once you decide that it is Alzheimer's, you can now focus on what is and what has been and you can forget what will be. Okay. It simplifies life. That that makes sense because um, I I think how many times I'm, even for myself and not just with Alzheimer's but just life in general, how many times do we worry about stuff that never ever happens? And you know you can't capture those moments back, and um, that's one of the big lessons I think the disease personally has taught me. So you know, I like that philosophy. Um, um, and it goes with the contented dementia philosophy. Contented. Mm-hmm. I love that word. So to be contented with what we have instead of trying to create something we don't have and we may never have. Exactly. So what is and what was still there and will never go away. It mm-hmm. will never go away. Yeah, and there's there's just that big fear of loss, I think, that, that people have. Um, why do you think people go there? Well, because we have expectations, mm-hmm. uh, and we this society in particular is is really pushing on that. We we really what is the focus of this society? If I asked you, Lori, uh, and I didn't know you, um, well, how are you? What I, my first question might be, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And so you would go into the line of work you do, perhaps what you have, what you've accumulated. So we value things and we value work. We don't value people as much. Those people that have Alzheimer's, most most of them uh, living with Alzheimer's, are older people, naturally would be older people. Now, my husband mm-hmm. was younger because it was early onset, but let's take the, the, the large majority of people living with Alzheimer's, which are older people. Those people, those people are the ones that that have beaten down the paths for us. They've built the roads for us to get to the success we have today. But yet we leave them behind us. It takes 20 years to raise a child, to educate a child so they can be self-sufficient, pay their taxes, and begin to build a career. With 20 years for a person with Alzheimer's, or as much as 20 years, to go through that um, that condition. It's not a disease, mm-hmm. it's a condition. It may take them 20 years or more, but we're not willing to go there with them. That's uh-huh. not right. That's not right. We need to shift that. Yeah. Any any tips on how people can shift that? Yes. By wanting to, by, by first of all, uh, being willing to step forward and help out. What can they do? People in long-term care will leave their loved ones there. I know because I go there 100 hours a month on the average, and if it's a holiday, I might see someone come in for an hour. I never see them after that to see that person. In the home, if you're in the home with stages one and two, 
Your neighbors stop coming. Your family might stop coming. Your friends will stop coming. So people have to be willing to step up. It's not something that you're going to catch, but it's something you can really help. Because my husband, one of the things that he really liked was to be socialized. He liked to go to the coffee shop to see people. To, and, he, and so I had to, when he couldn't go out anymore, I, I arranged for him to have people come here and play cards with him. Uh, I arranged for him to be in parades all dressed up as an officer. Um, anything that I could do like that to keep life going. But I was pretty well on my own with that. It would have been nice for someone to say, let me pick him up and, and I'll bring him back or things like that. So I think we need to really make a conscious decision that we are going to of our older population. They mean a lot to us. They carry the history. And mm-hmm. we and they've they worked all their life, so they're very worthwhile individuals, and they can share so many things with us. The other thing is that family caregivers are walking in psychopathy. You know, you know everything about your mother. Uh, if I wanted to know anything, I, I would be you. Uh, but instead, in a long-term care, we only hear about a problem after the fact. And yeah. they'll ask us, we don't know why he's acting like this, or she's, we don't know why she did that. And we never got a call. We never were consulted on it. There was never a meeting about it. Uh-huh. So there has, there has to be more cooperation, more dialogue, uh, and we really need to uh, integrate everybody into this new um, concept, the interprofessional uh, concept, and not be afraid of it. It's a co- I, I, collaborative uh, effort, I and we can shift I, it. Definitely, definitely agree with you. Do you have, you know, because in your situation, it sounded like you were somewhat isolated as a as a care partner. Um, how did you survive and kind of thrive with that? Do you have some recommendations for others who who might not have, you know, family support um, readily available to them? And well, uh, yes, I could do that. I was not somewhat isolated. I was isolated <laughs> completely. Uh-huh. Uh, but I I have my my training. First of all, is not like uh, like everybody else. So perhaps I had an advantage there. Uh, I knew what the legal courses should be uh, that I should take, and I knew how to organize systems. Uh, I got, for example, uh, Alice.com to deliver everything that I would have per- purchased at the, a Walmart, for example. I didn't have to go to the store. Um, I had some help, and I trained every person that came in here myself. And uh, so I, I took I took charge. I treated it as a job. Uh, the only thing is that 27, 24-7, after a while, even if it's treated as a job, uh, will wear you down, and there is a very clear um, path and stages to caregiving, and I covered all of those. Uh, so at the end, I was completely exhausted. It actually took me months of sleeping uh, after my husband went into uh, long-term care, but it wasn't until then that I, realized, that I could realize how tired I was. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it was a combination of of being exhausted and maybe some depression to boot? Because I think a lot of times um, depression is a problem for people who are caring for someone, but but it's not diagnosed. Well, uh, uh, I'll tell you what. uh, When I was a counselor in private practice and a person presented themselves with depression, I would say to them, you know, when you're depressed, you are depressing. Mm -hmm. So let's reverse that. Alzheimer's, after a while, of caregiving, family caregiving for 10 years, as I did, 
becomes depressing. So I was depressed from the depressing situation. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. You can reverse that and get the same results. So I did as much as I could. I I availed myself of of herbs that could help me sleep, could help with uh, the depressive state at times, and sometimes I was not so depressed, but sometimes I was. I would recognize that and do the best that I could under the circumstances. Okay. And I certainly didn't want did not want to burden my husband with it. Okay. Now you had mentioned um herbs and maybe you don't even want to get into that whole path, um, because you don't want to give medical advice out per se. Um, but I know that you know, a lot of people do go kind of the holistic mode in terms of um, you know, finding balance. Do you have any thoughts regarding holistic or not? Yes, I have some thoughts because I discovered uh, I had availed myself of Reiki several years ago. My husband had never uh, received any Reiki, which is a form of uh, healing using the energy around the individual. And uh, then I did some research on it and found that was absolutely one of the best forms uh, of holistic healing for a person living with Alzheimer's. And so my mm-hmm. husband has been receiving Reiki now for at least a year, year and a half. It's made all the difference to him in the world. He's much more calm. He's much more happy. He's much more at peace. Mm-hmm. And so our visits are extremely nice because uh, because of Reiki. Uh, I Can also you explain what Reiki is to our audience because I don't think everyone knows. No, Reiki is spelled R-E-I-K-K-I, R-E-I-K-I. And it's a form of healing, and the people that do that are usually called masters, master Reiki. They study for years to do that, and they simply uh, use energy around us. Uh, you know, everything has energy, right? Mm-hmm. Electricity, is we usually refer to energy as uh, uh, we look at electricity, but even individuals have, like, uh, have some energy. And, uh, for example, the... Uh, plants have energy. I remember my mother talking to her plants. She had beautiful plants. And mm-hmm. somebody looking at her probably would have thought she was crazy, but I'm telling you, she had beautiful plants. <laughs> um, so Reiki, Reiki is working with energy of the individual and moving that energy and putting it in some spots where uh, they need it. So the first time that Reiki Master started working with my husband, he had had several um, bladder infections and uh, that was very serious because that can lead to delirium. And she oh, worked, yeah. she concentrated on her on his bladder. At the same time as she did that, I got some essential oils, uh, sweet lemon uh, essential oil from uh, California. Put that not too far from his headboard in his room so he could actually smell it because he has very high sense of smell. And uh, since he's had that Reiki and that oil, and also we added some juice, we added the um, cranberry juice, every day, uh, he's had no more infections. So Wonderful. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at, and herbs also, or essential oils will also help with uh, uh, with controlling aggression, or if they can't rest, you can uh, use certain essential oils for sleep. And uh, when I rub his hands or his feet, massage that, I sometimes will put some essential oils to help him. Uh, and one of the best uh, herbs that I gave him was uh, pycnogenol, P-Y-C-N-O-G-E-N-O-L. It's a vitamin. Uh, it's, an, um, uh, it's a vitamin that uh, helps with uh, antioxidant, one of the most powerful antioxidants on the market. And recently I went to a 
workshop in Tampa, Florida, on Alzheimer's International Conference, and uh, one of the neurologists said that uh, uh, that sort of uh, supplement was one of the best, absolutely the best that we could give a person living with Alzheimer's. And what mm -hmm. it did, it gave him a lot of energy, he's more alert, and he can speak more because uh -huh. it uh, it takes care of all the free radicals, and even though his brain is suffering with Alzheimer's, uh, it's helped him to clean up everything else in his body. Okay. Well, I know I've done um, I have I've done some Reiki and energy healing and things like that, and and I think it's just phenomenal. Um, but again, I think people have to be open, like most things, um, to well, try. Well, uh, the, the person, the person. Well, no, it's it's not not everybody would uh, would want that. But if it helps, I say let's do it. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, you don't. Uh, he didn't have to actually agree to it because it's something that, for his, in his case, is done as a distance. The person mm -hmm. doing it is a six-hour drive from him, so he's never seen her, he's never met her, and she's helped him tremendously. Yeah, and and I think that just uh, making that comment is a lot of times people think it's like a massage and a touch, and it can be, but it they don't actually have to physically touch you. Um, and like you said, it can be long distance as well. And mm -hmm. so um, it's it's a very very um, interesting phenomenon uh, with with that. Um, but I, I know one that I have found personally helpful, um, and it's not just dementia oriented. I mean, there's people that that use this um, throughout their life, and um, have found it helpful. And again, it's you know everybody's got to find what works for them, and that's kind of what this show is all about: is just exposing possibilities of um, what works and what doesn't work um, for people in, in talking about it honestly, because we're all different, and um, yes. we all need different the things thing, at different times. Yes, we, there's so many options out there, and the more we hear about different options, of course, the more choices we have. It's all mm -hmm. about choices. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that I've done also for my husband that has helped him is to arrange his room uh, at the at the care center so that he has actually has stimulation 360 degrees, including the ceiling. And mm -hmm. so that's important, too, because I noticed that when he went in there that everything was pretty pretty plain and nothing at all uh, on the walls or the ceilings or anywhere. Uh, he even has uh, things on the bathroom door and an airplane mobile uh, with a fan on it. To uh, And the fan has two purposes. One is to actually helped circulate the air in his room because usually it's pretty stagnant. And uh, it also helps to move his airplanes because he used to be an aircraft maintenance officer in the Air Force, and so airplanes are meaningful to him. Uh, and his favorite uh, cartoon, a, a very large poster, is right above his head so that when he opens his eyes in the night, he can see that because I have also a light in his room that's on 24-7. Light okay. is very important for someone living with Alzheimer's. Yep, yeah. It's um, the shadow. Do you talk at all or, or get into um, with your coaching about shadows and how that can affect people, um, you know, with lighting and environment and so forth? Uh, say that, would you repeat that, please? Uh, with with like shadowing, how that can you know, de depending on the oh, light the, in the, the room, the shadowing. Mm -hmm. Chattering, you said? Yes. Uh, the first thing that I did when I went in there, they had a big mirror above his mm -hmm. 
his dresser, and I said, uh, I said, this is a, a whole uh, memory loss unit, and everybody had that mirror. I said, please, please, you've got to cover that or remove it. But we removed it eventually because I had other things I could put up there. Uh, so shadowing is a real thing for him. It's a real problem for everyone with Alzheimer's. And so, the, therefore, the light, you understand, the light that's there 24-7 is to avoid shadowing. And okay. uh, he can see everything then. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and their perception is all different, altogether different. Uh, Tipa Snow talks about that. She does excellent uh, training about that. And, uh, you know, the binocular vision um, and all kinds of things that they can actually be protected from uh, if only people knew I had that knowledge, then they would have more options and choices to make. Yeah. Well, in, we were both talking with a colleague of ours, uh, Steve Orfield, who owns Orfield Labs, who is just fascinating um, in terms of how they analyze things for the aging population. And, um, you know, and not everybody with Alzheimer's or dementia is, is older because we're seeing it younger and younger. But it's pretty fascinating going to his lab. I would highly recommend anyone interested in research, uh, you know, data-based information. On, it, it's just they show you how they change the lights and what our perceptions are and, and how we can see with much less um, energy cost and much less brightness, but when we get rid of the glare, we can we can see clearer. And they analyze all this stuff. So when people are, he's an architect, so when they design buildings, they can be much more environmental friendly for people. And um, pretty fascinating stuff. And you've you've mentioned uh, Tipa a couple of times, and Tipa Snow is, uh, I don't know, to me she's <laughs> she's probably top in her league in terms of training with dementia. Um, she's been doing it for years, and she has wonderful insights. And if people are not familiar with her, um, I would just Google her, and it's T-E-E-P-A-S-N-O-W, because um, she has some fabulous videos out there and is very engaging and entertaining um, as well when she when she speaks. But just has wonderful points. and. You had talked about even um, kind of that that binocular vision where they can't see things coming up along the side. So just in terms of how we approach people um, is very important. Do you have um, tips for family and or professional, maybe your top five tips that you would like to give people when they're engaging somebody with dementia? Well, they would be the same as, uh, as similar to what TIPA does. And, uh, um, you know, for example, uh, when you approach someone with dementia, to be certain that you're uh, facing them and uh, take your hand, your right hand, open your fingers so that they can focus on that hand because with the binocular vision, it's most likely they will not be able to even see you if, if you're even in front of them. So the hand movement going down and then extending it to shake their hand will automatically uh, give them contact and a smile on their face. Uh, it's uh, remarkable the difference on how you can just approach a person. Uh, do not ask any questions is another tip. Uh, do not give choices because choices require uh, too much brain activity that is too taxing. 
So there's a way to do that. If you know the person, and that's why it's so important to have a good uh, good communication with family caregivers to get to know that person as much as possible, um, uh, as many things as you can as possible. And uh, to simply allow them enough freedom to go about their uh, business as much as possible and to actually wait or um, uh, observe to see if there is assistance needed, but not to crowd anyone, let them have their life because uh, it's important for them to live as much as you and I. Um, so to go back to the brain and the light, and I'm very familiar with Stephen Orfield and his work in his lab, uh, the brain naturally, when I talk about that binocular vision, and, and neurologically this is what's happening, is the brain naturally will close the vision to save energy to survive. And so what Stephen Orfield is doing is helping the brain to survive better by being uh, aware of that uh, light movement and the benefits of light and what light should be like in what room. Mm -hmm. It's very, very important. Uh, so the brain uh, will, will give that, will na naturally adjust to that binocular vision and also the fact that they cut down on the speech. The speech spe speaking and thinking requires a lot of energy. The brain eventually will shut that down just so they can survive. It's a wonderful system when you look at the, the good things about Alzheimer's. There are a lot of good things about it. I'm grateful that my husband is still here and I can help him. Mm -hmm. What else are you grateful for? Because I know, uh, you know, I get that all the time. It's like how, because you know, I always say it, it really has been the biggest gift in my life other than my child. Um, it, it has just taught me to live different um, and be so much more appreciative and um, not take things so seriously. Um, I've learned to become more spontaneous and go with the flow, um, more relaxed and calm, less controlling, less judgmental. What, what kind of gifts um, have you found from the disease? Well, I, I'm naturally a very giving person and a compassionate person, so he allowed me uh, the chance to really bloom in that field. I'm able to be completely compassionate with him and without judgment. Uh, there's no judgment on his part, and certainly I, I cannot exercise judgment. And as you know, the meaning of unconditional love is to give without anything uh, required in return or expected in return. So he really established that well in me. And so he's a, a totally empathic person, and I'm compassionate. So together, it really works well. I mean, he's very happy with me, and I'm totally happy with him. Oh, that's that's so nice. It's uh, you know, I, I think um, again, part of it is just slowing down to to appreciate what is what is before us, and um, really understanding that you know, who we are and, and what we do is all relationship-based, and no disease, no illness has a right to take that away from us. And um, being strong enough to, to recognize that, um, that that's what, that's what happens sometimes. And then, again, thinking about, you know, just the, the point of tapping into services such as yourself can you explain um, to our audience, because we really didn't talk about this a whole lot, but how did you kind of go from life coach to, you know, Alzheimer's coach? 
Well, I went from management coach, uh, and then I had to let my business uh, shut down. It was Teamwork Development Associates uh, in order to be able to take care of my husband because it was a 24-7 uh, responsibility, and I, I'd rather do that than do anything else. Uh, and then once he went into long-term care, uh, I first rested, and once I was rested, I started to look at the, uh, the, the much more rewarding field of Alzheimer's coach and how that might look like, what the training would be, uh, what internships would be looking like, and what kind of responsibilities these, internal, uh, these uh, uh, Alzheimer's coaches could do to help uh, everyone, and especially the systems that we have now, the healthcare system, and how would they fit into this uh, intra-professionality uh, concept. And so I developed that. It took me a whole year and then to build a website and then a whole year again to start to conceptualize in real time what that was like. And so I've been negotiating with organizations, hospitals, uh, nursing centers, not so much assisted living yet, uh, but they, they're coming uh, because all these uh, places really need as much help as they can. And the work that Stephen Orfield does is uh, works hand-in-hand hand with what I do, except his is more physical, mine is more uh, philosophical and intellectual and practical and the actual care, providing mm-hmm. of the care. Well, I think it's uh, it's greatly needed. And, uh, you know, I think joining forces, you know, all of us joining forces together to make this shift is really the only way this is going to happen. And um, so it's, you know, I just feel so honored to have the job I, I have to be able to meet people like yourself and Stephen and Rick Phelps and Norm McNamara and Richard Taylor and, um, you know, people all over the world, uh, people with dementia um, who have been diagnosed with it, to those caring for it, to professionals and advocates. It's just, to me, it's just been such a blessing and such um, such um, amazement has come to me in terms of what is really being done and I didn't realize how many little voices there were all around the world and how powerful they are, you know, when they join. Um, I just think it's absolutely in- incredible, incredible work and, and so highly needed with the numbers, you know, that are going to continue to grow. How do people, you know, get a hold of you, um, Atel? Well, they can uh, email me at info at rememberingforyou.com. They can also call me at 207-764-1214. And um, they can Skype me as well. And uh, by, in, by email me, email me, emailing me, I can give them even more information on how to get a hold of me. Okay. But I want to thank you very much, Lori, for your forum, because you created this beautiful forum for for uh, for our voice to be heard, and I really want to tell you that I appreciate you. Oh well, thank you. I, I appreciate all you do too. And again, the, that's what Alzheimer's Speaks is all about: is giving voice to everyone, evening out the, the playing field, um, so that people can find the resources that they need. And I just want to give people your contact information one more time. It's www remembering and then the number four and then you.com so remembering for you.com um, and that's with the number four and then email would be info at remembering uh, for you.com 
And the phone number, once again, is 207-764-1214, I believe. Was that correct? Yes, that's correct, 1214. Wonderful. Well, I I appreciate all the time that you took with us. Um, Any last comments that you'd like to share? I know we're just coming to the end of our hour here, so... No, I, I just uh, invite everyone that is actually in charge of these large organizations to to avail themselves of uh, of um, of remembering for you and uh, provide a, a better service, provide it easier, and uh, save time and energy, uh, which equals money for them, and that's usually what they are looking for the bottom line. But we can help with that, and but most most importantly is uh, the family caregivers and. Their loved ones. We are very concerned about that. So we're here for you. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for your time and all the wonderful work uh, that you are are doing. Uh, keep it up, and I'm sure we'll have you back on the show at another time. Okay. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest here. Um, now, Martha is an author of a new book called Inside the Dementia Epidemic, a daughter's memoir, um, which I can't wait to talk to her because I just feel like we're going to have so much to chat about. I feel like she's probably written my story in some ways. She is uh, a volunteer representative for the New York State uh, National Family Caregivers Association She's a sandwich generation mom with two teenage daughters at home and a mother with advanced dementia in a nursing home. She earned her master's in English education from Columbia University, and she's worked as a communications coordinator, editor, and writing instructor. And she lives with her husband and her children in upstate New York. So please welcome with us today, Martha, and I'm going to try not to mangle your name too bad, Stetinius, I believe. How are you doing today, Martha? Hey, Lori. It's really good to be here with you, and I think you got my name just right, Stetinius. Oh, good, good. How are you doing in upstate New York? Uh, Did you you lose power or even more with, uh, with Sandy? No, we were lucky. We didn't lose power or anything. Um, oh, I'm sitting wow. here watching the the first snow of the season come down. <laughs> oh, so God. it's not bad up here. Well, our our hearts have just gone out to everybody who got hit by that that just horrendous storm. I've got a, a stepson who lives in New York, and um, you know it's just spooky when you see stuff like that happening and not being able to get a hold of people, and um, you know just it's it's absolutely phenomenal what what weather can do, but in the long run, it does bring us together, you know, one way or yeah. the other. Well, yeah, we've got, fam- we've got family down there that we haven't gotten a hold of the people in New Jersey yet. They probably just don't have their power back yet. And we lived in New York City for years, so it was quite a shock to see pictures of our old neighborhood underwater. So anyway, it's good to be here is, with yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I'm thrilled to death to hear about your book. And so, um, you know, in my introduction, I mean, we talked to, I just highlighted briefly, um, you know, that it's your mother that has the disease. Can you just give us a little bit more background on maybe when she got diagnosed and how long this journey uh, for you and her has been going on? 
Well, sure. It's it's been almost eight years that I've been her caregiver. It's just me in the family. I had a, a brother, but he passed away in 2004, so it's just me and my husband watching out for mom. <clears throat> she lived alone in a cottage here in upstate New York for about 25 years, and she was really proud of living alone. She had She was twice divorced and just enjoyed being on her own. But around 2004, early 2005, it was really clear that she couldn't live alone anymore. Not not in the cottage. It was really remote. And in the winter, she'd have to park her car at the top of this really long, steep road, about 45-degree angle up this cliff. And she'd have to walk down in the snow and uh, with ice cleats on her boots. And she'd hold a ski pole for balance and walk down, up, up and down. She put her groceries in her little backpack, and she managed that for years. But she called me that winter 2005 and told me she had fallen. She wasn't hurt, but she had fallen on the hill, and she was scared, and her doctor was concerned. She was losing weight. She wasn't cooking. The cottage was just a mess. She hadn't cleaned in a long time. It was full of recyclables. Just You could barely walk through the rooms. It was just in bad shape. So that's how it started. I, I you know, like a lot of caregivers, I I was in denial for a long time that she needed help as much as she did. I thought she just liked being there on her own and um I I realized fairly quickly when her doctor called me that it was worse than I thought it was. So I invited her I talked to my husband and I invited her to move in with us. We lived about an hour away. And I had two children, seven and nine, a son and a daughter. And um, so that's how our caregiving journey started. Wow. About and it does. It, it's it's typically not something we plan for. It just kind of hits our hits our doorstep. <laughs> Even when we kind of see it coming, it's still, I don't know, for most people they say it's a surprise when it actually lands. Um, was that for you as well? Did you... Were you kind of still shocked at what all it entailed and to what extent? Oh, def- oh definitely. I was totally unprepared. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess my think my thinking was that because in the winter it was it would be impossible to get people down there to help her. Um they wouldn't be able to they'd have to walk down and I couldn't ask people to do that in the winter. So I thought having her in my own home would be easier. That works for some people but for us, we live in a very small house, and Mom had no privacy. She, Looking back, I can see how much she lost. She lost everything when she moved out of the cottage. She lost her independence. She lost her home. And But I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about how I could make things easier for me and for my children and my husband and me. So um, she lived with us for only three months. It only took me a short time to figure out that it really wasn't the best arrangement for our family. I got a lot of support through our local caregiver support group at our office for the aging. Luckily, a neighbor of mine told me about it. You know, I think as caregivers, we don't we don't see ourselves as caregivers. We see ourselves as sons and daughters, or husbands and wives, or partners. We don't recognize that we've taken on this new job. But luckily, a neighbor told me about the support group, and I went to it, and I thought, yeah, I'm definitely a caregiver now. 
And uh, I went to a counselor with our local county's family and children's services department. They had free caregiver counseling. And I also saw a social worker and a, a psychologist who specialized in elder care issues. So I, I found support, and it helped me realize what a huge transition this was in my life and what, what effect it was having on me and my family to have her here. She was happy at first. She was grateful to live with us. But then, like a lot of people with early dementia, she suffered from depression, and she quickly withdrew into her room. She wouldn't come out for meals. She snapped at my children, and they didn't really understand why Grammy was always mad at them for not cleaning up after themselves and that kind of thing. So, so we encouraged her to visit some assisted living facilities. Luckily, she... She had a pension from her teaching job, and she had pinched every penny throughout her life, so she had some savings to work with. So we looked at some assisted living facilities nearby, and she decided she liked one place better than the other, so she lived there for the next couple of years. And I can so, talk more about that if you want. But Yeah. How did, um, you know, coming to the conclusion that this isn't working out, how did you deal with that on an emotional level? Because... A lot of people are very worried about what others are going to think. Um, so, how did how did you how did you address that and deal with that as a family and you know be able to respect your own life and and your mother's as well in terms of making that decision? Well, I think it was really the other caregivers and the caregiver support group who encouraged me to to think about the effect of this this change on, on my life, my health, my family. I had al- I'd always thought in my life that if I worked hard enough, I could do anything. And I thought, well, if I try hard enough, I can make this work. But the other caregivers, particularly the women in my support group, they encouraged me to, to take a close look at that. You know, one woman said, I, I remember she said that, you know, we think we're super women as, as as women. We think we can do everything, but we're human. We're we're finite. We can only we can only do so much. And that was a new concept for me. I had to really let that sink in. <laughs> and so I talked to my husband, and um, we had some neighbors here who had visited mom and liked my mother, and so they went with us to visit the assisted living facility so mom wouldn't think it was just us telling her about assisted living. So she'd have these other people that she enjoyed, you know, go with her for the tours. And that was really helpful so it wasn't just us. Mm-hmm. And also, I knew I knew my mom wouldn't remember our conversations about assisted living. So I typed out, I think it was a seven-page letter explaining all the reasons why it would be good for her to consider assisted living. And and I asked, she read it, and she reread it and over and over. And finally, finally she came to the conclusion that, that we were right, and it was the best thing to do for all of us. I think she she's a mom, too, and I think she was concerned about me and my family, too. So that helped her make the decision on her own. We didn't just force her to move, so that was good. Yeah, because sometimes it's really hard. We we make commitments. I know that was a question my folks asked. My dad had brain cancer. My mom was, 
with uh, Alzheimer's disease is, you know, I don't want to go into the nursing home. Please don't put me into the nursing home. And I, I remember saying, you know, I won't do that. You'll live, you'll live with me. Um, and, you know, my, my husband and I and our daughter had talked about that. We had talked with my brothers, you know, about that whole process. And then things drastically changed. And I couldn't care for my dad in the house. He took a fall and, and he needed 24-7 care. And, and when it came down to it, nursing home was by far the best um, place for him to be. And then mom was going to live with us, and she did for about two weeks, but then she had a revelation that she really wanted to be with dad. You know, she she missed him, and so she voluntarily moved in to the nursing home, which is uh, an unusual situation. Um, but actually, it turned out to be a blessing because I think one of the things that people don't realize is if it's not working, you can't hide all your nonverbals that you're feeling, and they're going to pick up on that. And, you know, it just creates more stress for you, uh, for your family, and for the person with dementia. And, you know, the, the level of care that we can give when we're feeling stress, uh, you know, it goes down. I mean, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We're not the best we can be. So, um, you know, I think that... Um, I want to thank you for being brave and sharing your story on that because I think it's a very difficult thing for people to um, process. And, uh, again, because of some of the stigmas of who who you are supposed to be as a caregiver and what your responsibilities are, and a lot of times it's from people who have never walked in those shoes. And um, so I really commend you for that. Now, in the introduction of your book, you know, you, you talk about how you came to see Alzheimer's differently, and not really as the long goodbye, but as the long hello. Can you tell us about, you know, your perception and and why you turned that around and what that meant to you? Sure. Um, Part of my book is the story of how I changed as a caregiver over those seven years. When mom first moved in with us, I made a whole lot of assumptions about what she could do, what she might be feeling. I I think like a lot of people, when I saw that my mother needed some help, I kind of assumed that she needed help with everything, um, that, uh, that she really wasn't the same person anymore. You hear the stereotype that, and I do think it's a stereotype, that people with Alzheimer's and other kinds of dementia are no longer here. They're just a shell of their former selves. Um, but really, I think we tend to treat people with dementia as if they're not fully human. And I, I, and I, looking back, I can see that I made a lot of those assumptions. Now, my book is not about criticizing myself for doing these things, but it does show you in scenes. I write in scenes and dialogue like like a novel. It's not a how-to book. It's a memoir. So I show you uh, in these different scenes what I'm thinking and assuming and feeling and what mom is, seems to be feeling and what she's saying and how she's changing. Over time, I learned that I learned from a number of, of Sources, other people and books and experts in dementia, I learned that mom was probably still in there, that there was more going on that, than I gave her credit for. 
I think it was around 2009, 2010, when I really made that shift in, in seeing Alzheimer's differently. There's There are a number of good books on the subject by John Zeisel and Bill, Dr. Bill Thomas, Dr. G. Allen Power, Joanne Kunikoska, and Basting. I went to a gerontology conference where they talked about seeing Alzheimer's differently. There's a beautiful book out of photographs by Kathy Greenblatt called Life, Love, and Laughter, Seeing Alzheimer's Differently. All all these people influenced me to, to think carefully about what mom might really be thinking and feeling. I, I want to say when she started to lose her language, when she... When she had perhaps another small stroke, I think she has vascular dementia, probably Alzheimer's disease, because it's hard to get a, a definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. But I think she has mixed dementia with those two types of dementia. When her language started to go in 2007, when it got kind of jumbled, like you hear about the word salad that people with Alzheimer's disease have, mm-hmm. When I saw her language start to go, I back then I kind of assumed that that meant that she was losing herself. I kind of thought that language was the same thing as who you are. And so she, for example, I went to visit her in, a, in the rehab center where she had to stay for a few weeks in 2007 when she and she fractured her pelvis. When I went to visit her, and I went every day because it just seemed like such a sad situation to have her in there for for so long. And it was only a few weeks, but it felt like forever. <laughs> so I went every day after work. And when she tried to talk to me, her she could only get out three or four words at a time. Sometimes they weren't quite the right words she was looking for. And I... I kind of assumed that she was just confused. I remember one time I went in to see her, and she 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 turned red, her face turned red, and she started to cry a little bit. And she said, "Martha, how did you know? How did you know I was here?" And she just seemed really surprised to see me, and and clearly she was in distress in this place. She was there for physical therapy, but probably most of the time she was just sitting around doing nothing. And she was clearly in distress, but because I expected her to be confused, I had heard so much about people with dementia being confused, I thought she was just confused about, you know, uh, how how I found her. She probably forgot that I visited her the day before and the day before that. I didn't hear that she was probably lonely and scared. I just I didn't hear her feelings. I just thought she was confused. It took me a long time to um to look at it differently and to really try and pay attention to what she might be feeling and thinking. Especially when she lost her language and I had to pay attention to her her facial expressions and her and and communicate with touch and other ways of communicating without language. But I feel very strongly that that Alzheimer's disease does have a stigma like that. Um, And I'm looking more at how I reacted over the years and not really how other people have treated her. 
You know, I love your your honesty and your approach in terms of saying, you know, this is how this is how I viewed it. That language was I I thought who she was, and then finding out that it, you know it's not just language. There's so much. There's so many other pieces um, to the puzzle. But it's uh, it, most people don't talk that honestly and break it down in terms of kind of what their thoughts are. I mean, I've read a lot of a lot of books out there, but um, I think you do a really nice job in terms of just looking at it in a different perspective and, and having those aha moments of what's really going on and how can I do things different and, and how the stigmas affected you in terms of giving care and engaging because it does, it sets the stage for us. And that's probably one of the most important reasons we need to, like, you know, plow the stigmas away and, and break through them because it sets up our perception of what this disease is. And for you, it sounds like you found the disease is, is very different from what you originally imagined in some ways. Would that be yeah. an accurate statement? Oh, definitely, definitely. It's it's not what I thought at all. I didn't know that much about dementia until I was in the middle of it. And I, I didn't even think of my mother as having dementia in the first year or so. I was her caregiver. I just thought she was really struggling for some reason and needed help. But um, I think I, I wanted to, to mention that another reason that the book is, is about our relationship being a long hello is because um, in our case, my mother and I didn't always get along very well as mother and daughter over the years. Um, you know, different people bring different family histories to caregiving. And in our case, my mother was an, al- an active alcoholic until I was 14 when she put herself into treatment for alcoholism, which was a really brave thing to do. And she stayed sober for the rest of her life. But Problems remained between us, and uh, we tried really hard over the years. I, I left home at 16 to go to college, and I never looked back. I never, <laughs> I lived far away. I had my own life. And when we visited, things were often really strained and difficult, and we tried really hard through therapy and 12-step programs to, to grow closer to each other. But it really wasn't until I became her caregiver. And I I was reluctant to to take on that role because as an adult child and an alcoholic, I really knew that I didn't need to be taking care of anyone other than my children. I really didn't want to be in a caregiver role because when you're an adult child, you were, in a sense, like looking out for your parents when they were drinking. You were overly responsible when you were a kid. So I didn't really want to do that again as an adult, but I saw that she needed help, and I love her, and I wanted to help her, and my my instinct kicked in as, you know, as a child, I, I just wanted to, as an adult child, I wanted to help her, but over time, caregiving brought us closer, especially when I slowed down enough to just, to just be with her. You know, so often we think of caregiving as doing things and getting things done and running errands and paying bills and driving them to the doctor. But when I slowed down, especially when she was 
was in rehab and I was visiting her every day, when I started to slow down and just be with her, we we really grew closer. When I remember one day when we were uh, visiting when she was in rehab, I I pushed her wheelchair out into the courtyard. It was summer, summer. It was warm out, and we just sat there and and talked. And I had remembered something that I had learned about dementia that we often don't ask people with dementia to to give affection or to give care back to the caregiver. We always think as caregivers we're, we're giving and giving and giving. Well, I wanted to give my mother an opportunity to give me something back in return that she would enjoy. So I said, Mom, you know, I could, I could really use a hug today. And she gave me the sweetest long hug, and then we just held hands, and she stroked the freckles on my arm, and we, she looked in my eyes, and she, and she said, we've come a long way. And I said, yeah, we really have come a long way. And then she said, and she was halting in between the words, but she said, Let, let's keep going in, in that direction. And, you know, that's all that I ever wanted to, to hear from my mother all those years, just to keep going in that direction, to to enjoy our time together. That was really a turning point for me. And ever since then, it, it's felt more like a long hello than a long goodbye. Wow. That is, I'm just teary-eyed over here. <laughs> it's like, that's very powerful, though. Very powerful. And, it, you know, this disease does give opportunities to heal, you know, if we're open to it. Um, and and I think that that's, you know, so important for people to understand that, you know, you there are new ways to communicate. <clears throat> you can break old patterns. It's a perfect opportunity um, to be able to break old patterns if you choose that that's what you want. Um, but even knowing that that's an option. So, again, I, I um, commend you for, for sharing that because a lot of people, you know, would consider – you know, a parent with, uh, that's an alcoholic is kind of dirty laundry, and we don't talk about those things. But I think you're going to be able to help so many people heal through this process because Lord knows you're not alone out there. And, um, you know, that has its stigmas in and of itself. But what a beautiful story. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, I wanted to ask you, too, about... We've we've covered this a little bit, um, but you you talk about in your introduction when your your mom moved in with you in 2005 that you you know quickly learned um, that you weren't superwoman, and when you said that I I just kind of giggled because I'm like oh I have the suit and the cape and the whole nine yards <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yep, I was right yep, there yep. with you it's like what do you mean I can't do this. And um, again, to come to that recollection. Um, so I just liked your your verbiage. I think we've kind of talked about um, trying to find the balance and the role of the new caregiver and stuff. But I wanted to mention that that superwoman role because I think one, so many women feel that, and um, and two, I think a lot of it. It's not something. I mean, for myself, it's not something that I decided this is who I'm going to be. But as a little girl, I think that's how I was raised, that this was my role. Yeah, sure. I think we all are, definitely. We're the caregivers, aren't we, as women? 
Now, yep. there's so many men who are caregivers, but I believe that um, statistically men are less likely to do the hands-on physical care of caregiving. Um, but still, there are lots of men out there doing it. But I think as women, we're raised to just be ready to jump in and do this. Yeah, and I think those numbers are changing. You know, my dad was one who, I mean, my God, the man couldn't even boil water, and he was running the household. I mean, he was cooking and cleaning and um, just doing everything. It was absolutely incredible um, to watch him step up to that role and not complain. It was just, uh, and I remember having a conversation with him, and he just said, Lori, she is taking care of things all of our lives. This is the least I can do. Yeah, I've met a lot of, of older men who are taking care of their wives, definitely. But I think maybe um, adult children who take care of their parents, it's often the the daughter or one of the daughters. Maybe she lives nearby or she doesn't work full-time or something, and she... she um, I don't want to say gets stuck with the role, but people look to her to do it. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah def- definitely. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the the importance of challenging the stigmas of dementia um, that are out there? And again, we we touched on that a little bit, but I just want to make sure that I give you enough time to cover everything um, in that in that category because I think it's such an important one. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about um, this incident that happened when mom was in rehab for her fractured pelvis. On the day that she was evaluated, her first day there, I took the day off from work, and luckily I have, luckily I had a very understanding boss, and I had flex time, which most people don't have. So if I had to take a day off, I could make up the hours. So I was there with mom in the rehab center, and the physical therapist um, wanted mom to walk quite far down the hallway to get weighed and to see to see how far she could walk uh, and to see her what her pain level was. She hadn't had any pain medication. She had a fractured pelvis, so every time she moved her leg, it was very painful. And um, the physical therapist couldn't get mom to walk back to her room. Mom was in so much pain, she just sat down in a chair and she refused to move. And the physical therapist said to me, you know, your mom was swearing at me. You know, I, we're used to that. She's probably sundowning. You know, we're used to that kind of behavior with people with Alzheimer's disease. Well, I got to thinking later that mom, mom really never really had sundowning per se. She was just refusing to move and, and she was cursing because she wasn't she was in pain it wasn't because she was showing uh symptoms of alzheimer's disease it was because she was in pain and she was trying to protect herself so i pointed that out to the physical therapist and then they made sure that mom had pain medication before her physical therapy so that she wouldn't be suffering like that i think i think we so often assume that what that the behavior we see, whether it's aggressive behavior or paranoid behavior, it's because we we assume it's a symptom of dementia. It's the disease. Well, I think oftentimes it's the person inside who is experiencing a full range of emotion and and feelings and thoughts. And um, I've tried as her advocate from 
from time to time I've had to speak up for her and gently remind people of that. And I think it's helped. Um, but I think that we're too too quick to assume that people with dementia are not in there, that they're all gone. In fact, I just, I just read a memoir uh, written by Alex Witchell called All Gone, a memoir of my mother's dementia with refreshments. And the title alone, now it's a fine memoir and I enjoyed reading it, but the title alone, All Gone, I believe, if I can say this, <laughs> mm-hmm. if it's fair to say this, is kind of a, a stereotype. Um, I don't think her mom was truly all gone. But anyway, I really like the book Still Alice, the novel by, um, her name escapes me now, but it's Still Alice. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone out there has read it. but Lisa Genova, I think it is. Yeah, Lisa Genova. You get this woman has Alzheimer's disease, and you see it progress. And by the end, she's forgotten that she has a disease. But she's still in there. She's still enjoying being with her family. She's still enjoying small pleasures like eating ice cream and things like that. And that kind of a book reminds me that when I go visit my mom, we can find things to enjoy together. You know, we, we can enjoy each other's company if she's still in there and not to just write her off. <laughs> Because she has dementia. Mhm. Yep. So 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 true. Now you also um, talk about the difference between caregiving and care partnership. If you can describe for our audience how you created that care partnership with your mother and, and what you see are the differences between the two. Sure. Now in the book I write a little bit about a couple a couple of alternative ways of looking at caregiving. Um, I write about the Eden Alternative, which encourages nursing homes to use person-centered care, truly person-centered care. And also the Greenhouse Project, which um, is a new uh, program across the country where uh, nursing homes and assisted living facilities can build small homes with six to ten elders in each and a completely different way of providing care that's truly person-centered. I can't really get into the specifics now, but I learned about these things, and I learned about the whole idea of care partnerships. I thought it was kind of a fancy word at first. I didn't really understand it. But to me, if you're a care partner with the person that you're caring for, you're treating them as as equals, they may have dementia, they may they may have poor judgment, and their memory may not be there, but they're fully human. They have things that they enjoy. They have preferences. They have needs. Um, they're just they're fully human beings. And when you when you talk to them and when you do things with them, you can ask them to. You can you can talk to them just as you would anyone else, and you can even ask them to do things that might um, give you care. That's that's how they can give you care. For example, yesterday when I saw Mom in the nursing home, I brought my little schnauzer. I have a little little dog named Shadow, and Mom has three schnauzers over the years. So I usually ask her if she'd like me to put Shadow on her lap, and she usually does, and she'll. She sometimes she'll pet pet him and smile down at him and just enjoy him, which 
that's more than she normally does. To to move her hand like that and to to pet a dog and to smile down at that that that's a huge thing for her in in her day. Um, and even the 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 aides there, the the nursing aides commented on how she just comes out of herself and smiles and looks so happy when the dog's on her lap. Well, yesterday I said, Mom, you know, you're really helping me when you when you hold the dog for me. And it was true because I, her wheelchair is really hard to push and I had my coat and my cup of coffee and having Mom hold the dog was really helping me. <laughs> and I said, Mom, this is really helpful. Thank you so much for holding the dog. And she just smiled up at me and it was a really nice moment where she knew that she was doing something that helped me, that she was useful. And uh, part of the Eden alternative philosophy is that most people in nursing homes feel helpless, lonely, and bored, and you can help them. In this case, I think I helped her feel useful um, and not helpless. She could do something oh, for me. Definitely, and that it and doesn't that just warm your heart when you when that happens when there's it, it's just oh it, it's just so tremendous of a feeling um, to feel yeah. that connected um, uh, to me it's just kind of an incredible incredible moment um, now I also wanted to talk about um, kind of beyond the idea of care partnerships between two people um, the idea of care circles. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people don't know about. So can you describe what you mean by a care circle and how and why you think people should incorporate uh, that into their lives? Definitely. I think if you take the idea of a care partnership where the person who's giving the care and the person who's receiving it, it's they both give and take affection and care to each other. I think a care circle just, enlarges that. As caregivers, I think we have to remember that we can't do everything on our own. We need, even though we're tired and um, we may not have the energy to do this, we need to try to bring in other people to care for our loved one. If you care for someone at home, um, you can ask a friend of yours to help you uh, bring in other people. And I'll give you some examples in a moment of how you can, can do that. But I think for mom, her old friends kind of fell away, you know, with dementia. Old friends may come and visit at first, but often often they just fall away, maybe because of the stigma of dementia. They're not sure what to talk about. Or I know that if I meet someone with dementia that I don't know very well, it takes me a while to warm up to them too and, and figure out how to how to connect with them. But anyway, as her old friends fell away, I found new new people who could be her friends. Um, I call them her paid friends. Uh, for example, when she moved from the memory care facility into the nursing home, I asked the director of the memory care facility if any of the are the resident assistants there would be willing to come see mom a couple times a week so that mom wouldn't lose all of her relationships from the memory care facility. When she, because when she moved from assisted living to the memory care facility, she lost all of her old friends there, all of her connections. I didn't, I didn't understand the importance of creating a care circle and keeping those connections alive. So one of her 
resident assistants from the memory care facility did agree to see mom a couple times a week because her own mom lived in the nursing home where my mother is now and her mother passed away there. And she really loved my mother and she wanted to see her. So she's been one of my mother's paid friends for the past two and a half years. She's seen my mom every week. Another paid friend is a neighbor of mine who does massage and Reiki for 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 elders. She specializes in working with older people. And she's seen my mom every week. She does hand massage, arm massage. She'll talk to mom, read to her, take her outside. She's become a real friend for my mother, a paid friend, but someone that my mother sees on a regular basis. I, I try to remind myself that throughout her life, mom always had good friends. They were very important to her. It was never about just me and my mother. She always had other people in her life, and I wanted to help that that continue. Um, I think also a care circle is important for me as a caregiver because I need a circle of care around me. I have my Alzheimer's caregiver support group through the Office for the Aging. When mom had a mild case of pneumonia a few months ago. I called I called my local hospice and talked to them. I talked to a counselor at the Alzheimer's Association. I have a, a good relationship with the staff at my mother's nursing home. And, of course, my, I have my husband and, and friends to talk to as my care circle. You really need that as a caregiver. But I think I wanted to say before, I think it's hard for caregivers to find the time and energy to to create that care circle. <clears throat> Let's say you're caring for someone at home. There's two things I could suggest that I'm familiar with. One is the book called Share the Care that will talk about how you can create a care circle, Share the Care. The other is a website called lotsahelpinghands.com or .org, Lots of Helping Hands, where... Let's say you can ask a friend of yours or another family member to go onto the website and create a web page. It's very, very easy. It's not scary at all. It's super easy. Go on there and create a calendar so that your neighbors, your friends, your the people at your religious organization, your coworkers, they can go onto this website. It's secure. It's a private website. You can go on there. And they can sign up for like one little task a month. Let's say go grocery shopping or come and visit your loved one for a couple hours while you go out and get some time to yourself. <clears throat> they can sign up for one little thing. And if every if a whole bunch of people do one little thing, you end up with a whole lot of support and you don't have to coordinate it. They, you know, they get an email to remind them that they signed up to do this task and then they just show up and they do it. I highly recommend those two resources if you want to build a care circle. Wonderful. I know the um, Alzheimer's Association has um, something similar on their site, too, but I have to admit that I, I have a hard time finding it because there's so much stuff there sometimes. So, um, I, And I think Bright Star has something similar, too, which is another home health care agency. So I like that. Share the care, lots of helping hands, the Alzheimer's Association, and um Bright Star, I believe, all have kind of those caring modules where you can really coordinate with the calendar and 
put out what it is you need and when you need it, and people can respond so you're not on the phone all the time and everything is automated and it's really a they're really very cool cool products um to be able to tap into and to my knowledge um there's not a fee I don't think anyone is charging a fee for those. Do you know if these uh, two, the no. share of the care or yeah share more? the care yeah share the care is just a book a wonderful book um lots of helping hands. The website is free they're they're supported by donations from different corporations, so you can go on there and set up a website and there's no charge whatsoever mhm, okay, great. Because that's, uh, you know, the more help we can have with this process, <laughs> the better. Because it, it sure is not a simple, a simple thing to go through. Um, are there some other points that you want to share with our community? We've got about 15 minutes left, um, but I just I, I want to make sure that I give you enough time to cover um, everything that you want to in this uh, in this program. Well, I can't think of anything off. And I uh, did another radio interview this morning at 9 o'clock for about an hour, and I'm perhaps a little brain dead, so you'll have to forgive me if I don't think of anything else. Feel oh, free to ask me no. something. You Feel free to ask me something, and I'm sure I can think of something else to add because um, yeah, there's a lot of information have... in my book. Yeah, there's a you lot, have given, a lot to um, share. given us a ton of information, and so I... You know, my intent isn't to push the envelope and fill the airtime. It really is about um, having a natural conversation. And so I just want to throw out to our audience, if anyone, again, is interested in asking a question or has a comment, please use your chat box, or you can call in to 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Five seven, and we'd love to we'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, Martha, if you can let people know how do they how do they get a hold of you, and uh, how do they get the book, and so forth. What what information would you like to share with with our group? Sure. Well, you can contact me by email through uh, at Martha M A R T A J at Inside Dementia I N S I D E Dementia dot com, or you can call me about the book. If you don't have email, you can call me at this toll-free number, one eight six six two two zero three five nine two. 220 And for more information about the book, you can go to the website, which is InsideDementia.com. The book is available on all major book retailers online, like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, a whole bunch of things. It's actually available in 10 countries. And libraries can order it too. If you if you have a local library, you can ask them to order it. <clears throat> oh, great! Well, that's that's wonderful to know because uh, you know knowledge is power out there. And um, you know, again, I I think you've done a nice job in terms of how you've designed and laid out your book because it's it's just in kind of common language, and you give real scenarios that that you've gone through and drawn a picture for us so that we can, as a reader, make our own conclusions and go, oh, that's what's going on. Um, I hadn't thought of it like that before. Um, I, I think all of that is just so very, very important because, you know, as you know with this disease, it affects each of us so differently. 
and it's uh you know it's one of those things where there's there's no right or wrong um way to do things because everybody is different and moment to moment the type of care we deliver um and the style in which we do it um and the task itself can change as well as our our attitude and you know our energy levels and all of those things come into play so very um very important information well, Martha, I, I don't see that we have any callers with any questions, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show. But, I again, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and sharing with us your personal journey um, with your mom and um, some of the beautiful stories um, that you shared um, as well were just very, very poignant and, um, and very powerful. So I would encourage people to... Um, to look Martha and Atel both up and uh, see if they might be able to help you in the future. In the meantime, we do have more shows coming up. On the 8th, I'm going to have Jane Wolf Waterman with us, and she is um, another life coach. And then I'm going to also have uh, another author with us. On the 16th, we're going to um, be honored to have Mike Schmerling back with us, and Adam Sandler. And they're with Abe's Garden down in Tennessee that's just building this fabulous, fabulous uh, facility that will actually have a research center above the community. And so um, I hope you'll be able to uh, to be with us then. And we also have a Dementia Chats coming up, which is a webinar, a free webinar platform where I interview um, people who have dementia and that'll be on the 13th. So again, I want to thank everybody for sticking with us today, and I want to remind people to get out and vote tomorrow. No matter which way you go, it's important to uh, to take that seriously and get out there and vote. And then um, I want to point out one more time about the um, new trial that's out for Alzheimer's disease. It's in its third phase. Uh, by Tau RX Therapeutics. You can just go to www.don'tforgetalzheimers, and they have done a um, webinar that's recorded that will explain that. They're looking for people all over the world. Um, So get some information. Maybe it's something that that might work for you. And then tonight, again, ShareCare is having a Facebook chat. at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central, so that would be 4 Pacific Time. I'm going to partake in that. I've never been uh, part of a, a Facebook chat. Have you, Martha? No, I haven't, but I'd like to. Yeah, if you go to Facebook and just type in uh, Share Care, it'll pop up. Uh, Lisa Gibbons is going to be on there along with Eric Hall, who is the um, president and CEO of the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, and then they've got a doctor from John Hopkins um, that will be with them again. And I want to thank everyone for being part of the Alzheimer's Speaks community. Um, again, it was just announced, and I'm so humbled and honored that um, Alzheimer's Speaks was the number one influencer on the Internet for Alzheimer's disease. And they go through 70 different matrix to measure this out. But Without everyone coming together as a community, that never would have happened. And so, again, it's not about me. It's about 
the greater good and all of us getting together, sharing the knowledge. Um, so if you have a story to tell, if you are a person with memory loss, if you are someone who is giving care to someone with memory loss, like our two guests today, uh, Atel and Martha, you know, please get a hold of me. Maybe you have a service, a professional service, that is just a little bit different uh, that you think people need to hear about, or maybe you're raising awareness for the cause. Let me know because this show and all of our platforms is about raising the voice of all so that people can find the information they need. Um, again, thank you so much, and if you like the show, please uh, click it and tweet on it and share it with your friends. Until next time, we will see you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Lori. Bye. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.